Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast, which is sponsored by Pfeiffer Vacuum. I'm Hamish Johnston, and in this episode, I'll be in conversation with an award-winning astrophysicist who uses X-rays to explore the universe. And we'll also meet a civil engineer who explains why new thermoactive roads could help prevent potholes. But first, a word from our sponsor. We would like to thank Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this podcast. The company is one of the world's leading developers, manufacturers, and suppliers of vacuum solutions. Pfeiffer Vacuum has been producing innovative end-to-end vacuum solutions since 1890, and over the years has collaborated with some of the largest and most ambitious scientific experiments. The support of young scientists in cutting-edge research is of great importance to Pfeiffer Vacuum. X-ray satellites are developed and tested in space simulation chambers. This happens in large vacuum recipients in which space conditions are simulated. Vacuum products from Pfeiffer Vacuum meet the highest quality and engineering standards and provide vacuum solutions precisely tailored to the needs of scientists and customers. Find out more at Pfeiffer-Vacuum.com. Our first guest this week is the astrophysicist Victoria Grinberg, who is a liaison scientist at the European Space Agency. As well as using X-rays to study the violent vicinities of black holes and neutron stars, she's a science communicator and also dabbles in scientific illustration. Victoria is the most recent recipient of the Röntgen Prize, which is given for outstanding work on basic research in radiation physics and radiation biology. The prestigious 15,000 euro prize has been awarded by Germany's Justus Liebig University Gießen since 1960, and it's sponsored by Pfeiffer Vacuum and the Ludwig Schunk Foundation. The award panel described Victoria as an outstanding junior researcher in the field of X-ray astronomy, who has enormous development potential. And I'm very pleased to say that she joins me down the line from the Netherlands. Hi, Victoria. Congratulations on the award and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. So, Victoria, you're a liaison scientist with the science division at the European Space Agency, and you're based at um, ESA's European Space Research and Technology Center in the Netherlands. Can you tell us a bit about your role there? So, the liaison scientist always confuses people because this is not a job that like exists everywhere. So scientist tells you I'm doing science. Uh, so I'm an X-ray astronomer from my own background. And the liaison, that's the confusing part. So my role is I'm the connecting point between the ESA science directorate and the scientific community. So my role is uh, I am there to um, 
find ways, find good ways to show the, the community what ESA can do for them. For example, how they can use the data that our telescopes produce or how they can use our archives or how they can propose science mission to the European science missions to the European Space Agency. But I'm also there to do the channeling in the other way and for example find out what does the community actually need from us. Kind of like in which format do they want to have their data? Or um, what kind of missions do they want to have in the future? And I'm the first person actually holding this job, so it didn't exist before. So I didn't even know when I started my scientific career this job existed. Uh, and at some point I've seen it and I was like, wow, this is actually exactly what I want to be doing. I love to be doing science, but I also love to be to enable other people to do science. Uh, so that's kind of that's my role. Um, I'm in the Netherlands, so because so the science directorate has three locations. Uh, we have a big location in Madrid. We are here at Aztec, and we have a small group of people working in Baltimore on the JWST and on the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, so it needed to be one of the three locations, uh, and I do happen to really like the Netherlands. <laughs> And we were chatting before the interview, and and you mentioned um, PhD students. Do you do you have students at the moment? Are you affiliated with the university, or or do you work exclusively at um, ESA? So normally we don't have PhD students at ESA because right we are not a university. We are not a PhD granting institution. But I started with the European Space Agency slightly more than two years ago. Uh, so I still have some people from my group back in Tübingen. Uh, so this is in Germany. This is where I was before. Uh, one of my PhD students actually just graduated this May. So oh, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations to Kamita, yes. Uh, and I do have one more student still in Tübingen. And otherwise, I collaborate with people outside of the European Space Agency. So because we are not a university, we don't have PhD students on here on location. Okay. Okay. But but you're still doing fundamental research. Is that right? I do. Yes. Yes. This is this is very much part of my job because to also like, to be connected to the community, to understand what they want, I need to be part of it. Right. Okay. And you're you're also um, a spokesperson for the X Wind collaboration. Um, can you tell us a, a bit about the aims of, of this collaboration and what you've achieved so far? Am I, am I right in, in thinking that X stands for X-ray? You're correct. Uh, so the name tells us that we are trying to bring two things together, X for X-rays and wind for stellar winds. Uh, so what happened is... Um, X-ray astronomers often look at what we call X-ray binaries. This is a black hole or a neutron star that is in a close binary system with a normal star and material from the normal star is being accreted onto the black hole or neutron star and black hole and neutron star produces X-rays. Now the companion star is quite often a massive star that has very strong stellar winds. And X-ray astronomers look at these winds and go like, oh my God, it's so complicated. All this like additional absorption, additional stuff in the system, it's super annoying. Um, 
at the same time, it's a really cool way to learn more about the stars if you are interested in stellar physics in the actually stellar wind. So the idea that my colleagues came up with, so the idea existed, well, quite a bit before I started actually doing science, uh, was to bring together X-ray astronomers and people working on stellar winds. So this is what, and those are two very distinct scientific communities. So this is what the XFIN collaboration is trying to do. Um, and uh, what we, we are like a loose combination of people. So this is not like an official collaboration, big collaboration, I don't know, like, like LIGO or whatever. It's a group of people who work together, who are interested in uh, breaking boundaries between different parts of astrophysics. Um, and some of the cool examples that we have, for example, me and a colleague who does simulations of stellar winds have recently developed a method how to use variability to learn more about um, stellar winds. And imagine you have a lamp and you have like a lot of insects flying in front of, in front of the lamp. So you kind of have flickering of the light. Uh, and this is pretty much what happens in the system. So you have the stellar winds that are all clumpy flying in front of the X-ray source. And depending on the flickering, we can actually learn more about the stellar winds. We can learn how they are structured and what this, for example, tells us about how much mass such a massive star is losing. Uh, or my student who just graduated, so she studied the tail that some neutron star kind of like pull behind them that consists of the materials they collected from the wind. Um, and she has found kind of like something about the structure about, uh, about this tail. So this is the kind of science we are doing. And we are also thinking about the future, about um, how this future missions uh, like CRISM that is going to launch hopefully on August 26, uh, we will be able to do even more exciting science. And, and so, so the X-rays that you're looking at, they come from, they don't come from the stellar wind. You're looking at how those X-rays interact with the stellar wind. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So the X-rays come from close to the neutron star to a black hole. Um, and they are produced close in there, and then we are using that to learn more about the stellar winds. A little bit like I sometimes compare myself to a dentist for stars. You know how a dentist puts the X-ray machine into your mouth and looks at your teeth? So this is what we are doing with the stellar winds. We use the X-ray source, so the black hole or neutron star, to learn more about the structure of the stellar wind. I see. And... and were astronomers able to, to, to do observations on stellar winds in the past using other types of radiation, or, or was that very difficult to do? Yes, they were able to, but the problem is that all stars are very far away. So what you are seeing is uh, the whole star and the whole of the wind However, we do know from theories that some of the wind is supposed to be very structured. So it's kind of like tiny clumps. Imagine, imagine clouds on, in the sky, kind of like nice sheep-like clouds. Um, and we cannot resolve this structure with other emission. We really need the X-ray source as a kind of backlight and the structure to pass in front of the X-ray source in order to really study the structure. 
I see. And Victoria, you're you're also um, involved in uh, an organization. Indeed, you're a co-founder of an organization called Astronomers for Planet Earth. Um, can can you talk a bit about that organization? Why why did you get involved in it? Um, I'm glad to. Uh, so what? Well, first of all, Astronomers for Planet Earth. So what we try to do, we bring we try to bring awareness of sustainability, both into astronomy and to use astronomy to communicate about the climate crisis that is ongoing in the whole world. Um, And uh, I was always somebody who was interested in the environment. And then there was a conference in Lyon, in France, uh, in 2019, and that was in the middle of a heat wave. It was terribly hot, more than 40 degrees Celsius. We were in rooms that were not air conditioned. Everybody was really suffering and we were all complaining. But we also started at some point asking ourselves, aren't we maybe also part of a problem? Because we all came together from all over the world with all our travel emission. Um, And what happened from these conversations is that we thought, well, we should get organized because an individual person, well, they may have some thoughts, but they do have trouble really starting some kind of action. Uh, So we we collected a group of people who was interested in getting organized. And then we realized that some folks in the U.S. have already started something similar. So we brought the American and the European parts together. And this is how Astronomers for Planet Earth really happened. So we are a grassroots organization. uh, So it's not like this one person standing in front. It's more a collection of, it's a way, it's a collection of astronomers uh, on different stages of their careers. It also includes uh, amateur astronomers or, for example, teachers or journalists. So everybody who is connected to astronomy professionally. And um, the idea is really to enable each other to think about how we make our own work more sustainable, but also how we uh, can communicate about climate science uh, and about the the climate crisis. And Victoria, you mentioned um, communicating about um, about the climate crisis and and the effect that astronomers um, can have on on carbon emissions. In 2020, you co-wrote a paper in Nature Astronomy that compared the greenhouse gas emissions of in-person and virtual international conferences. Now, I'm guessing that virtual conferences have a much lower carbon footprint. But what, what, what are the details that, um, that you published in that paper? Can, can you talk about the results of that study? Sure. Uh, so first of all, um, how did this paper happen? That actually happened during this terrible, very hot conference in Lyon, where we said, well, if we want to tell people that this conference is not very sustainable, we should have numbers. So we collected the numbers. So we got information for about one sixth of the participants, where they actually come from and how they got to that particular place. Um, We asked people and some of them wrote back. So based on that, we could actually make an estimate of what is the CO2 equivalent 
of, the, of, of this conference, of the impact of this conference. And what about slightly less than uh, 2,000 tons of CO2? So it was 1,850 tons of CO2. Uh, now, that was our plan for the original publication, and then the COVID pandemic happened, and the conference in 2020 was fully remote. So for that conference, we could also make an estimate of what was actually the impact, the CO2 impact of that conference. So we looked at things like network-related emission, right? So every laptop that is connected to the internet is gonna cause some emission. We are looked at the laptop actually related emission, right? So my laptop is plugged in. Uh, and it, we also looked at the emission related to the Zoom servers because we were using Zoom for that conference. And bringing this all together, it's about 580 kilograms, right? Before that, it was 1,850 tons. And now we are talking about kilograms. So it's about more than 1,000 times less. Um, so it's kind of like not very surprising, but it's good to have hard numbers. Uh, but it was also interesting to actually look into uh, where the people did come from and what did cause the additional emission. Because for people who come from Europe, you can say, well, but you could take the train. And this is kind of like true. And like some people actually from the same location took the train and some took a flight. So you could say, well, please take the train. Uh, but there were people that came from different locations, say from Tel Aviv or from Abu Dhabi or from South Africa or from Australia. They obviously cannot take a train. <laughs> um, but also the emission from this long distance flight actually contributed a really big amount to the total emission. So we can't just say, well, everybody who can take the train, it's better than if everybody flies, but we are still not bringing the emission down to a tenth or so. We maybe can half the emission. Uh, and for me, that was personally a really big eye opener. In the paper, you and your co-authors suggest that emissions associated with international conferences could be reduced by replacing an international event with several regional events all held at the same time. Do you see this as a better solution than to simply hold a conference completely online? Is it? I mean, do you think that it's important for, for people to, to still gather in, in one place or in several places rather than be sitting at home or, or in their offices participating in a conference? Well, I, I'm not sure I think it's a better solution. It really depends on what, what people want from a given conference. So there are some conferences where everybody is like really focused on the talks and the science. So this is like this is about like hardcore science. All that we want to do is tell each other about the work we've done in the last two years. This is something that can happen remotely. Uh, but especially for the younger folks in the community, I'm talking about PhD candidates or about younger postdocs who don't yet have a network 
who are maybe the only person or one of the only two people at the institute working on a given topic. It's also important to be able to communicate. Um, and I would love to be able to say that this works well on Zoom uh, or on some other teleconference software, but we are still struggling with that. And I think for those people, it's really important to also meet in person to be able, especially, well, if not especially for the young people, but even also for like mid-career folks like me, to have a conversation over copy and tell them, oh, I really have this problem. And I'm like, my paper is taking so long. Uh, to be able to commiserate with their colleagues. So um, I do think it's a good way to, to balance out some of the things. It's not, it's not a perfect way. And it's not always a better way, but I think we need to combine different types of conferences. Uh, so there are some conferences which also may not work remotely at all. For example, conferences that consist only of, a, of discussions. Well, maybe we can do that in the in the virtual reality at some point. So this is what some colleagues are trying. Um, but it's it's a way to experiment and a way to try um, and to. But also, to be very honest, I haven't tried one of those conferences myself yet. I would really love to. Uh, but astronomers have so far been hesitant to organize something like that. Um, the idea partly came uh, from more solid state physics. And there people tried. And there they have been pretty happy about the outcomes. Uh, so I really think we as astronomers should try. <laughs> So what's the what's the current situation with with major astronomy conferences? Um, you know, for example, like the um, the the uh, AAS in uh, the U.S. Are, are are they mostly in person or are they mostly um, uh, online or what 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 seems to be the what do astronomers favor at the moment? So right now, a lot of the conferences did return to what they've been like pre-pandemic. So it's mostly uh, in person. Uh, they are hybrid uh, components to them. And we are still struggling, I think, as a whole community to really find a good way to do that. Uh, and part of the problem is that hybrid is not cheap. Right. So you need cameras, you need possibly uh, professional technicians or professional camera people. A lot of the conference centers uh, may not have the right hardware. Uh, so we the big conferences tend to be, again, in person. Uh, so I'm not too happy about that, uh, being somebody interested in sustainability, but also being someone who is interested in including more people into our communities, right? They are visa travel, for example, for a lot of folks. Um, for the smaller conferences, I think uh, this is where people are doing more experimentation. I, I mentioned shortly before that there are actually conferences and also summer schools uh, taking place in virtual reality. Uh, so people are kind of like tiny avatars uh, running around in some cool space. Um, I haven't participated in one of those, but people seem very excited about them. So possibly this is one thing to explore in the future, one thing to experiment with. And Victoria, you're also keen on doing outreach, um, you know, sort of bringing astronomy uh, to, to the wider public. Can you talk a bit about some of those outreach activities that you take part in? Um, so I've, I've done quite a bit over the years. Um, 
to be honest, my favorite are still talks, public talks in observatories or things like astronomy on tap um, or pint of science or things like that, uh, because it's I find it really amazing to interact with the audience, uh, to see people who are excited about astronomy, who ask questions about astronomy, uh, to have kind of like see people light eyes lighting up when you show them amazing pictures of the sky and actually explain them. Well, those are X-ray photons that came from a black hole uh, 6,000 light years away. Uh, so this is something I'm doing. Um, I'm also trying to reach out to younger audiences. So for example, last weekend, I've been to a summer school for high school students in Germany. So me and a friend of mine talked about our research, uh, introduced also what it is like to be a scientist. Uh, because a lot of scientists that people encounter on TV are well, quite a little bit older than me and my friend are. <laughs> so it's nice for them to kind of like see a real scientist who stays there with them for lunch or for dinner and with whom they can actually ask questions about what it is like to work at a university. Um, so those are the kind of things that I'm doing. And sometimes I'm also lucky and get a chance, for example, to write an article for high school teachers about astronomy. And if they read the article, they can pass the information on the ideas on to their students. And, and when you're talking to, um, you know, the audience, me members of the public, what what are what, what aspects of astronomy are they interested in? I mean, I would assume that people are interested in things like black holes and and the Big Bang and, and maybe the nature of dark matter. Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe people have very specific interests. Totally. People love black holes and exoplanets. I think those are kind of like the two topics that everybody is excited about. Well, black holes, exoplanets, and everything related to the planets in our own planetary system. Uh, but what I find people are, people are interested in, but don't know that they're interested in until you start talking to them about it, is how astronomy is actually done. So not just about hey, this is a cool image on the sky and this is what we found out. Um, it helps to tell them, uh, for example, that uh, all our or most of our big space telescopes are international projects where big groups of people work together, same for a lot of ground-based observatories. People don't realize, oh, it's actually a thousand astronomers from all over the world working together or for Euclid that... ESA has just launched, right? So it's 2,000 astronomers from all over the world. And once you start talking to people about this like human side of astronomy, uh, that also really, really touches them. But most of them don't know that they're interested in that before they go into a talk like that. They come for the black holes. Uh, but I do like to imagine that they stay for both the black holes, but also this human side of like, how is it that we actually make exciting science like that happen. And and what about, um, you know, other aspects of the technology? I mean, are, are people interested in, you know, for example, the use of artificial intelligence in astronomy or the use of, you know, technologies that have been developed for astronomy um, in consumer goods? Is I mean, is that something that, that you touch on? 
It's definitely something that folks are interested in. Um, it's not something that I myself am talking about a lot because I'm actually an observational astronomer. I'm not a tech developer. Uh, but for example, I just mentioned that this last weekend, I've been talking to high school students with a friend of mine, and the friend is actually somebody who specializes in using machine learning and artificial intelligence in astronomy. And I was really surprised, also impressed by how deep the questions were from even the high school students about topics like that. So it's definitely a topic that is coming both within astronomy, right? We have this like giant amounts of data and we need to address them, but also from the general public, once they realize, oh, you can actually do that and use, for example, AI or machine learning methods to actually get astronomy. Uh, but they are also sometimes really critical about that. So one of the high school students, for example, asked, well, but AI are black boxes. How do you trust them to actually, like, that what they tell us about the universe is right? And we talked about the scientific method. We talked about how to test things that you don't trust just like one algorithm, but you actually do more tests and you also look for, well, does it actually make sense what the machine returns to me? And another thing that you're really interested in, um, Victoria, is illustrations, scientific illustration. And I think if if listeners go to your um, website, I'll put the link in the notes for the podcast, they, they can find a number of um, fantastic drawings, at least I think they're drawings, that you've done of a wide range of astronomy-related topics. How, how did you start doing these scientific illustrations? Well, thank you so much that you like them. Um, so, um, I've been doing art as a kid. So I went to art school when I was like 10 or 12, you know, like, like parents send their children to music lessons or to art lessons. Um, and then, well, high school happened and studying physics happened. So I stopped doing that, but I always was somehow missing it. Uh, but also I remembered I was really good at drawing as a kid and then I tried to restart and I was terrible at it. <laughs> oh, no. uh, so it was very frustrating um, until I got an iPad and I realized I can do art on an iPad. And because I've never done digital art as a kid, I did not have this memory, oh, I need to be a lot better than I actually am. Um, and then I thought about, well, what it is that I'm actually enjoying. And I really enjoy cartoons that in a, in a funny, well, I make fun of academia or cartoons that like really by people represent their own science in a way that actually helps them communicate exactly what they want. So this is what I tried to do with, with my own art. Uh, and they are digital drawings, uh, but I'm actually not using like a professional drawing program for them uh, for a reason, because I tried to use Procreate and things like that, and they have so many possibilities. I could spend weeks just finding the perfect brush to do what I want to do. So I chose a note-taking program that does not allow me to like run off um, and uh, like just like get lost in the details, but that really forces me to sit down um, and to draw what I want. Um, and my idea behind the drawing is really 
often when I do outreach or even when I talk to my colleagues, there's something I want to express. I want to show a certain thing and I can find almost the right image online. But to get it perfectly right, I need to draw it myself. And so this isn't just for fun then. You 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 use it to to communicate with your colleagues. Have, have you ever had a um, an illustration published in a journal um, to, to do with your research? Not for the research purposes, uh, but uh, so for example, when I wrote my article for high school teachers, I wrote it actually with illustrations of my own because I wanted, for example, to highlight different scales in X3 binary system. And that only really works um, if I have a drawing the way I want it. So my drawings are a little bit more cartoonish. So they, they don't quite fit into like a proper scientific journal. Uh, but I have a colleague, Alexander Mushtukov, um, who is, I think, now in Oxford, possibly in Cambridge. So he does very fine, detailed illustrations uh, of uh, neutron stars. And his illustrations are actually part of his paper. But they're a lot. They're beautiful, and they're a lot less cartoonish than mine. So different styles. And and just one final question, Victoria. You, um, you, you know, as well as your your sort of basic research into into X ray astronomy, you've got a. I mean, it sounds like you've got a wide overview of both the astronomy community and also, you know, how people view astronomy. What what's your take on the on the future? Of astronomy, do you, um, do, do, what, what, what are some of the key challenges that um, that astronomers will face um, in the future, and what are some of the key opportunities? I think one big challenge, as the one we talked about, is uh, well, climate crisis. If things get worse, and they're currently set to get worse. Um, how can we still do astronomy, right? Um, I do think astronomy a little bit like art, right? So it's a human pursuit of, of really of knowledge. Um, so this is kind of like, this is one thing that I think is gonna be important. Uh, the other point is we are really on the verge of really, really big data. Uh, this is both data coming from space mission, for example, data that Euclid is going to deliver. This is data from LSST. This is upcoming data from uh, the upcoming, uh, so for example, square kilometer arrays, so large radio surveys. Uh, so we are. I feel we are really going away from one person sitting at their laptop looking at one data set and more towards the world where we work together in big collaborations uh, and we also use data science, use AI to really understand it better. And there's also some danger to it, right? Because AI and a lot of algorithms are sometimes black boxes, right? So we need to be sure that we actually really understand the tools that, that we are using. But Maybe I'm also totally wrong. Ask me again in 10 or in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and what about the feeling that you get from the public? Um, you know, when you do your out outreach activities, you find that, that people are generally supportive of astronomy. Because, of course, you know, because as, as astronomers, you're competing for public funds. And I suppose telescopes are becoming more and more expensive. Do, do you find that there's a, a support there from the public? For astronomy, 
it's a little bit hard uh, to tell because people who come to a public outreach talk about astronomy are, of, of course, always interested. Uh, but even from, say, from conversation, I have with random people on a train. So I have a ESA laptop. It has an ESA sticker on it. So people sometimes just ask, oh, what is that? Uh, are you actually working for a space agency? Uh, people are still pretty supportive. Um, my feeling is that astronomy, because everybody knows what the sky is, uh, people can still see the Milky Way. People have heard uh, about the Hubble Space Telescope and seen the amazing images. Uh, it's kind of like it's present there in people's minds a lot more than other parts of physics. Uh, people don't realize sometimes how complex astronomy is, uh, but they do have the feeling that they still understand that it is a fascinating science and it's a way to really learn about our human's place in the universe. Well, that's great. That's a great place to end. Thanks, Victoria. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, best wishes with all of your endeavors in the future. Thank you so much. I'm not sure why, but last winter seemed particularly damaging to the roads here in Bristol, with potholes appearing in just about every street in the city. So wouldn't it be nice if someone could develop a clever technology that could prevent potholes from forming? Physics World's Margaret Harris investigates. Potholes are a problem on roads all over the world, damaging cars and posing risk of injury and even death for riders on two wheels. The usual way of fixing them is to spend millions on, inex on expensive and inconvenient roadworks, but my guest today thinks he might have an alternative. His name is Ben Yi Chow, and he's a, le he's a lecturer in the School of Sustainability, Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Surrey here in the UK. Hello, Ben Yi. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Margaret. Glad to be here. Thank you. So maybe you could begin by explaining to our listeners what causes potholes to form in the first place. Okay, so first I'm going to give some background information about the roads in general and the potholes. So we all know that roads are the critical national infrastructure and the UK has built an enormous of 260,000 miles of motorways and A-roads. And uh, however, the increased uh, climate change and extreme weather cause serious road damage and the transport um, disruption. Uh, potholes are actually formed by three elements. The first one is the surface crack, the second one is water, and the third one is the freight-thaw cycles. So at first, the small surface cracks form and uh, expands over the time with the action of traffic. And then water can seep through the cracks. And in winter, when freezing temperature occur, uh, water freezes and expands, opening the cracks. So the water expands contracts when it freezes and thaws, and this repeated expansion and contraction can weaken the asphalt binder, which is the glue of the road. And this is a major contribution factor to the potholes. So once this happens, the road um, surface can quickly fall prey to different types of deterioration. 
and the potholes we can see like everywhere is one of the types. Okay. And as we all know from being drivers and passengers or even just walking along the roadways, the main way of fixing potholes is to apply a patch, you know, a few shovels full of asphalt or tarmac, smooth it over. Uh, and then obviously when that's no longer good enough, there's too many patches. The solutions tend to be that you rip up the entire road surface and replace it. You know, what are the downsides of that? So, as you said, keeping our roads in good condition is really important for the road safety and also the transport. We, we don't have transport disruption from time to time. But if we still use our current road technology, the maintenance carbon emission will be like 700,000 tons per year. And the cost of repairing pothole plague the UK roads is estimated to be 12 billion pounds in the next decades. So that's a lot of carbon emission and uh, maintenance and repair costs, which we cannot really afford actually in the next decades. And uh, actually last year, the uh, national highways made their commitment to the environment and achieving road maintenance net zero by 2040. And this ambitious decarbonization program put UK roads at the heart of the net zero future. And uh, my project is going to use a new type of sustainable and renewable energy, which is the geothermal heat energy, to warm and cool the road and to regulate the temperature of the road surface so that the freight store element we mentioned before won't happen anymore, um, therefore preventing the formation of potholes. So how does that work? How does this sort of thermal, new sort of thermal style roads work? Okay, so actually heating and cooling the road surface is not a very, very new um, concept. There has been some demonstration projects uh, in Europe in general. But at the moment, what they're doing is to embed some pipes underneath the road sur surface. And in winter, they're going to use the electricity to create um, heat and to warm up the road surface so that there won't be snowy and icy road and there won't be like frozen um, road. But the, the thing about is that the electricity generation at the moment is not that environmentally friendly and it also causes a lot of carbon emissions. So in my project, my idea is to incorporate this innovative um, geothermal ground source heat pump into the road. So a heat pump, you can imagine that the aim of a heat pump is to concentrate uh, the heat. So in summer, the dark asphalt uh, road surface can collect the heat from the sunshine when the temperature rises. And then we're going to also input some uh, pipes underneath the uh, road surface and we're going to circulate liquid inside of the pipes. So the heat can be collected and transferred into the pipe liquid and the pipe liquid can flow down to the subsurface of the road, which is the native soil of the road. And in there, we're going to enhance the thermal conductivity, which is the like the thermal conduction and the thermal storage capacity of the subgrade soil, so that the heat can be stored there in the summer. And in winter, we're going to operate this term in a reverse way, so that we're going to extract the, the stored heat from the subgrade soil and uh, to move this heat onto the surface of the road so that it's kind of an interseasonal recycling of the heat energy. So in winter, we can use this summer collector heat to warm up the road. 
and we don't need to use much electricity. The only electricity we're going to use is to run the heat pump. But for one electricity, for one unit of the electricity uh, energy, we can move four units of the heat onto the pavement. So that's actually quite low carbon and a low cost alternative to the um, current road maintenance technology. So, I mean, this all sounds very extensive. I appreciate, you know, the, the logic of heat pumps, the physics of heat pumps means you get a lot more heat out than you put the uh, electricity in. But, you know, still, what roads would have this technology? I mean, are we talking about every road or just motorways or, or what? So basically, this technology can be easily incorporated into new constructed roads because when you start to uh, construct a road, the first thing you want to see is the foundation, the subsurface um, soil and the embankment. So when they're doing that, the pipe of the ground source heat pump can be easily embedded, incorporated into that. That's only going to be marginal installation cost in addition to the already planned uh, construction cost. And uh, in that way, for new rows, uh, it's not a problem. The problem is the existing rows. Like we have highways, motorways, those major rows, and also we have minor rows, like the two-sided rows uh, in our towns, cities, and even like uh, the countryside. Those are the real problem because we don't want to and cause any traffic disruption when we install these roads. One possible way is that um, at the moment, every 10 or 15 years, this, there's going to be a work, a road maintenance work called resurfacing of the road. That's probably the opportunity when we can incorporate some new pipes underneath the road. So when they are retrofit and redo this surface of the road, that's one moment we can incorporate this new technology. Another possible approach is to um, get some trenches on the sideline of the road and embed the pipes into the trenches. And then we can uh, embed the pipes underneath the road surface by drilling horizontally. So in that way, there won't be much uh, traffic disruption, but those are only the and the plan and proposed uh, alternative ways to incorporate this new technology. And in the next five years, we're going to try all these different ways and to collaborate with national highways and local uh, county councils to see if any of these um, approaches going to work. So, yeah, you mentioned you're, you're currently at the start of a five-year fellowship that's focused on investigating these ideas. You know, what will that work involve? You mentioned some of the practical work, but what will the, the whole project involve? Okay, so this uh, fellowship is um, awarded by the Royal Academy of Engineering to Surrey University. Uh, Surrey University is my uh, host institute. And the overall aim of this fellowship is to revolutionize the road maintenance by utilizing this new shallow geothermal energy uh, system for road temperature regulation and reduce both the costs and the carbon emissions. And in order to achieve this overall aim, I have proposed like four key tasks and objectives. So the first one, I'll start by actually developing innovative microcapsules. So these are tiny, tiny capsules. And these capsules will be made uh, with graphite as the shell 
and the a new material called phase change material as the core. And uh, in, in such way, these microcapsules can be incorporated into the road subgrade to enhance its thermal conduction and the thermal um, storage capacity. Because at the moment, we don't think the native soil has the enough thermal capacity to be able to uh, support this ground source heat pump system. And after developing these innovative microcapsules, I'm going to build a lab-scale thermoactive model road. And this is going to be coupled with the heat pump unit in a large soil chamber, but it's still in the lab scale. And this will allow me to evaluate the thermal performance and the resilience of the road under controlled traffic and climatic conditions. And after I, I, I've done that, then and now we'll be developing an advanced uh, uh, numerical model, that's computational model, and combine the above-mentioned experimental data to analyze the coupled like thermal, um, hydrological, mechanical behavior of the road. And uh, I will also implement the uh, meteorological data from the different UK regions and develop a user-friendly standalone app for the designer and engineers for affordable and rational design. And lastly, I will conduct two field trials on fully instrumented road segments and assess the life cycle, economic and environmental impacts. And this work is going to be done uh, in collaboration with National Highways and also Surrey University and potentially uh, the Surrey County Council. We're still getting in touch. And uh, with this two um, full-scale field trial, we can evaluate its potential contribution to achieving the National Highway's Net Zero Plan. You talked a lot about the environment and and mentioned meteorological data. Um, I mean, obviously, that, that, that data is for things, the climate as it has been. How will climate change affect these problems that you've, you've discussed here? Um, how I mean, you might think that, okay, if it gets warmer in the UK, then you won't have the freeze-thaw cycle. So maybe maybe that might be a silver lining. Is that true? Yeah. Um, we, we're going to use not only the current meteorological data from the Met Office, and also there are a lot of prediction models using the current data to predict what's going to happen in 50, 100 years in the UK. And we're going to also adopt one of these uh, models to predict the future climate change in the UK. And we're going to also apply those predicted data into the numerical model to see if our proposed road can endure um, the future fast changing climate. And uh, there are Undoubtedly, going to be a lot of extreme weather events, and we're going to see this. Uh, what's the effect of these extreme weather events on the road surface? Okay, and these field trials you, you mentioned um, they'll be taking place largely in Surrey, I guess, local to you. Uh, where might we see you on the roads in the next few years? Um, one possible site is going to be at the Surrey University campus. So we have a very good um, Surrey Sports Park. And uh, they're going to do a retrofit project of the sports park. And that's the opportunity when we can uh, have like a segment of rows. It's probably like uh, 20 meters, 50 meters, or even 100 meters. We don't know that yet. But uh, possibly we can have like a, a road and uh, to incorporate this new technology and to see its 
um, performance and resilience under this um, current climate. Uh, it's, it's interesting because we have this opportunity to do the field trial in Surrey, because if you remember last year, Surrey has the highest recorded temperature in the UK in summer. So that's a very good thing because we have some extreme uh, weather events here in Surrey, and uh, it's possible that we can collect enough heat in the summer uh, in, in Surrey University campus and to uh, recycle this heat in winter and to prevent the freezing thaw cycles of the road. And finally, Benny, how did you get interested in this, this topic? What sort of led you to say, I want to investigate better ways of, of, prevent, of uh, maintaining roads and keeping roads in good thermal contact with the ground? Uh, the first thing is the the road, the, like the road safety is everywhere in the news because over the last five years, there has been over like 5,000 personal injuries caused by the potholes in the UK. And this include a um, Paralympian, Stephen Thomas. And this case was reported on BBC News. And I saw that news and I feel like I'm a trained geotechnical engineer and I know a lot about the transport infrastructure and my PhD uh, was done about like innovative uh, construction materials back in uh, Cambridge University. I feel like there is something I can do to prevent the future personal injuries and also uh, the low carbon emission from the national highways. National Highways has been a, a collaborator with my previous research group for many years. So they have the like the, the demand and I feel like, mm, yeah, there are something I can do on this topic. Right. Well, if you listeners, if you, if you see Ben Yi and his colleagues out in the roads of Surrey, be sure to wave as long as it's safe to do so. Yes, and maybe, <laughs> And maybe at the end of the fellowship, we can have you back in the podcast so you can tell us what you've learned. Yeah, thank you. Ben Yi Chow, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was the civil engineer Ben Yi Chow in conversation with Margaret Harris. And before that, I was chatting with the astrophysicist Victoria Grinberg. Thanks to everyone for joining me on the podcast today. And a special thanks to our producer Fred Isles and our sponsor Pfeiffer Vacuum. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which investigates alternative ways of generating green energy. Host Andrew Glester is in conversation with Nicole Kaplan of the European Space Agency. She's investigating the feasibility of sending a fleet of solar cells into space and then beaming the energy they generate back to Earth using microwaves. Also on hand is Danny Coles of England's University of Plymouth, who explains how we can extract energy from the tides. And also in the program is Douglas Gillespie at St. Andrews University in Scotland, who assesses the risks to large marine mammals from such infrastructure. That episode is called Green and Novel, The Future of Energy Generation, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider.
where you'll find all episodes of the Physics World Stories podcast. Thanks again to Pfeiffer Vacuum for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Pfeiffer Vacuum provides all types of vacuum equipment, including hybrid and magnetically levitated turbo pumps, leak detectors, and analysis equipment, as well as vacuum chambers and systems. You can explore all of its products at pfeiffer-vacuum.com. Physics World.